want to tap into the incarnation of, of why did Jesus actually come? Why, what are we actually celebrating? What do we want to remember? And what we need to remember is there is the incarnation, the eye that Jesus came to earth. And there's a wonderful phrase in a song that I love, and it's called A Thrill of Hope. And what I want to do for the next couple of weeks as we go through this Christmas series, I want to talk about the subject of hope. The song says, A Thrill of Hope. Anybody recognize that? I'm going to invite Luke to play the first line of the song of uh, O Holy Night, and then I'm going to come up and we'll kind of tie this all together. O Holy Night is one of my favorite songs. I know from so are you, it's one of your favorite songs. So hear and listen to, uh, to the first line. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long may the world in sin and terror pining till he appeared. And the soul felt its worth A thrill of hope The weary world rejoices For yonder breaks A new and glorious morn Fall on your knees Hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night. When Christ was born, O night divine. song. I think it encapsulates well what we are here this morning to do, to worship and to honor Jesus. I'm going to put the line on the screen again, a thrill of hope. I want to just walk through this first line. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks the new and glorious morn. I believe that line on there that says, A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, is a great description of where we might find ourselves today. And do you feel weary? I was taking my dog into the groomers the other day, and I walked up, and there was a sign on the door that said you had to do this, this, and this because of this COVID virus. And I just stopped, and it wasn't against them. It just stopped, and I just stopped outside, and I thought, Lord, I'm just getting weary of this. You don't know what to do. And now they're even talking about a new variant. Now here it is a year later, and do you feel a little bit weary about all the things going on in our world? There's a weariness going about us. Steve mentioned the serious health issues that many people have, and they're very serious. And you know of people that are going through some serious health issues. And they're really serious. And we pray for people. We put them on our list. We've been praying for those people. 
And at times we feel like, well, you know, there's a sense of, I don't know what to do. The only thing that we can do is pray. We feel a sense of hopelessness as we look around and we see people struggling in life in a very, very real way. And then you look around at what's going on in our world. I'm seeing groups of people breaking into stores to steal stuff. And my mind can barely comprehend it. And I see some of these other things. It makes it really, really difficult for me to watch the evening news because of all of these things I see going on. Life is incredibly challenging right now. We need this idea, a thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices that God and the unique person of Jesus offers us hope, even in the midst of difficulties, in the midst of challenges. There's a psalm that I came across this past week. I just want to read it because it it meant a lot to me and it speaks to the issue of hope. Psalm 130 says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Cry. When you are going through a difficult time, don't you feel like you're crying out to the Lord? You're asking the Lord, Lord, where are you? What's going on? If you, O Lord, kept a record of our sins, O Lord, you could not stand. But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman, wait for the morning, more than the watchman, wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. This beauty of who God is and what he would have for us. And in Jesus, in the Bible, we have this idea that God has come to offer us hope. So what I want to do is I want to invite you to turn your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. And we're going to look at this idea of hope from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul had a love for the church. He had a love for people. And he had a love for this young man by the name of Timothy. And Timothy had been left in Ephesus. And Timothy has the responsibility of carrying on a very, very difficult kind of work. And what Paul wants to do is he wants to encourage Timothy. He wants to encourage this young man in the faith and say, listen, don't give up. Keep moving forward. In the midst of false teaching, in the midst of all of these different things going on, I want to communicate to you a message of hope. And I know that it's a message of hope because that message, it changed my life. It transformed my life. And I want you to carry on this message that I'm going to give to you. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. Let me just read it. Notice what Paul says. Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for this very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Father, I pray that you'd open our minds and our hearts to the understanding of the hope that we have in the unique person of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that Jesus came into this world to save us from our sins. And Father, I ask that through the word of God, through the spirit of God, through singing these wonderful songs this morning, we would be reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus. And Father, I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So there's no doubt that Paul has this message to Timothy. And twice he mentions that the hopeless condition that he's in. Notice he says, I'm the worst of sinners. And what Paul wants to do is, listen, I don't want to reflect on the fact that I'm just a really bad guy and a bad sinner, and I'm going to parade all the bad things that I've done in front of my life, the death of Jesus. But what I'm going to do is, I want to tell you how my life has been transformed. I want to tell you what's happened in my life. Jesus came into this world to save sinners, and I'm the worst one of all. But that's ultimately not the message, how bad I am 
The message is how good Jesus is and what he's come to do. So Paul has a message for Timothy, a message of hope. So let's just kind of unpack that. First of all, he says, we have a message that can be trusted. Look at verse 15. We have a message that can be trusted. When you leave here this morning, you know that you can trust the life, death, burial, and resurrection. You can trust the words of Jesus. Verse 15 says this. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. In verse 12 through 14, Paul is saying, listen, I want to tell you how my life has been changed. I want to tell you that the grace of God has radically changed my life. And probably at the heart of this message, the heart of this letter, is this idea of what Jesus has done to come and to save us from our sins. And it's an important message. And what Paul wants is saying, listen, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to forget this. I don't want you to dismiss it, Timothy. I want you to make sure that you carry on the truths of this message to the people located there. Let me ask, what do you do if you have an important message or you want to communicate something? Don't you want to make notice of it? Don't you want to raise your hands or wave your arms or do something if you want to communicate an important message? I was coming into the office this morning, and if you're coming up Highway 7, you know that you exit to Natural Bridge. You come off, and then it goes to two lanes. Well, I'm exiting the highway, getting ready to approach the light. And a gal comes up in a car on Natural Bridge, and she makes a left, but she makes a left heading in my direction, heading onto the highway. I started honking my horn. Beep, 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 beep. I'm trying to get her attention, saying, listen, you are 100 feet from entering into danger by heading on the highway going the wrong way. And I think that's what Paul's doing here. He said, listen, I want to get your attention. I want to point out something to you that's absolutely trustworthy, something that's reliable, something that you can depend on in your life. I think that's what he wants to do. Five times he uses this saying, a trustworthy saying. And again, when you look at Paul and you look at his writings, he mentions this over and over in the sense that he's got an important message. I want to give you some theology here, so this is a trustworthy statement. Or, or here's some doctrinal issues that are important, so this is a trustworthy statement. Or I want to communicate to you an important message specifically about Jesus and what he's done, so this is, this is a trustworthy statement. And that's what Paul is trying to do. He's saying, listen, I want to get your attention. Because in chapter 1, verse 6, it talks about somebody wandering away from the faith. In chapter 1, verse 19, it talks about a guy by the name, I believe it's Hymenius, who has shipwrecked his faith. And he doesn't want people to walk away from their faith. He doesn't want people to shipwreck their faith. So what does he say? He says, listen, I have a message that is absolutely dependable. It is reliable. It is rock solid. Will you embrace it or not? Timothy, and will you carry on that message, that tradition? So Paul has an important message for Timothy and has an important message for him. So what is that message? Look at verse 15. Pretty simple. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. As you look at this message from Paul to Timothy, I want you to recognize something. And I really wanted to preach on this this morning because I think it is that important. There is an ugliness to Christmas. There's an ugliness to Christmas. There is a darkness to Christmas that we need to know. Notice what the song that we sang, it says this, Long lay the world in sin and error pining. It means this, we are losing our health. We are losing our vitality. There's this essence of sin that's deep inside of us that radically changes us. And it changes who we are. And it changes the way that we operate. There's a darkness. There's an ugliness to Christmas that we need to know about. Yeah, there's a lot of beauty. I love the beauty of the Christmas tree. Yesterday was a beautiful day, and I could see people out. They were putting up their Christmas lights. Laura and I, we didn't have the opportunity to do a lot of decorating, so we put up our Christmas tree, and it was great to have the lights out there and to see this. 
and we're going to put up other decorations, and we're going to put an advent calendar up because when the kids come over, they're going to ask how many days to Christmas, and so you, you put that advent calendar up, and they can check the days off. And then maybe in a couple of weeks, you're going to write that annual Christmas letter about all the different things going on in your life. You probably spent a considerable amount of time yesterday or the day before buying, purchasing Christmas gifts so that you can no doubt have the perfect gift for your spouse or your family member. But sometimes hidden behind all that, there is a darkness. There is a darkness that people wrestle with and struggle with. You realize that one of your loved ones is no longer there. And there is an aching in your heart. And we try and mask it through some of the things that we do. I received a text from someone that said this, the holidays are hard for me because there is a darkness in life when relationships have been broken, when lives have been broken through the process of sin. There is a darkness. There is an ugliness to Christmas. I recall a conversation with someone who is a part of this church at some point and said, Clint, Christmas is a really bad time for me. And that kind of shocked me, put me back. Why? Because there is a darkness and there is a weariness to Christmas. And see, we often think of this idea of sin or this concept of sin as this, well, God just gives us a bunch of rules that he wants us to follow. And when I break the rules, that's God telling me that I'm not going to have fun or I'm just going to be in disobedience to him. We have this mindset of sin. It's just, I'm doing something wrong that God really doesn't want me to do, and I really want to do it. But I think that's a wrong mindset of sin. There is a darkness. There's an ugliness to sin. Let me just walk through a couple of things for you. Do you realize in Psalm 38, verse 4, it talks about sin being a burden? When I do something wrong, and there's this burden deep inside of me, and it weighs me down, and it holds me down, and I feel bad, it's a burden of my soul? Read Psalm 32 and see how David describes the burden of his sin. It's almost like this hand being weighed upon him. Sin is described as a burden. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 22, it talks about sin being this stain upon our life, this, this guilt of stain upon our life. Maybe you've done something in the past, and there's this stain upon your body or, or this stain upon something that you've done, and you just can't scrub it off. You can't forget it. It's at the back of your mind. It's at the back of your heart. It's right there. That's the burden, that's the sting. What about Zechariah chapter 3? Sin is likened to having dirty and filthy clothes. I've done something wrong. Nobody else knows about it in the world. But I walk around as if there's this scarlet letter upon me. There's this filthiness, this dirtiness to my life. Genesis chapter 4. Very few people on the earth. Sin is likened to a lion crouching, waiting to devour someone. The Bible talks about the thief coming to to rob, to kill, and destroy. This idea of what sin wants to do is it wants to destroy us on the inside, destroy the very core of who we are. Romans chapter 8, verse 15 talks about being a slave to sin. In other words, there's certain things that I, I don't want to do. I don't, I don't want to do this, and yet I still continue to do it. And that reminds me that I'm, I'm, I'm held captive to, to slavery, to sin. I want to do the right things, but I just, I just can't break through that. That's what sin is described as being being held captive by sin. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, it talks about sin being king or reigning in your life. In other words, it comes upon me in such a way that I cannot get rid of it. And it's almost like sin is a king or a reigning in my life. I don't want it to do that. The book of Colossians, sin is likened to this, this debt that has to be paid to this rebellious kingdom that we are part of. There's no doubt that sin destroys, the darkness of sin destroys in a 
in a way that we cannot enjoy. It destroys our very, very soul is what he's talking about here. And because of that, God deals with us. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, I want to remind you of the destructive nature of sin. Let me just put a text on the board here. Let me just walk through. Because of all that I've described, notice with this, all of us are under this penalty of sin. Verse 9 says this, what shall we conclude? Paul writing, he says, what shall we conclude? Are we any better? Not at all, Jews and Gentiles. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles all understand. You say, listen, every one of us are under sin. You can't get away from it. Every one of us bear the penalty of sin. What else does Paul revere? Sin defiles us. Look at verse 10. As it is written, he's going back to the Old Testament. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's not one righteous person. Every one of us have been defiled by this thing called sin, darkness of sin. Sin blinds us in verse 11. There is no one who understands. We don't fully comprehend the holiness of God, the wonder of God, the beauty of God, why we would have to come to earth. Sin blinds us to our understanding of our own sin sometimes. The last thing we see here is sin produces this idea of running away from God, of wanting to hide from God. Look at verse 11 and 12. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Sin even keeps us from seeking a relationship with God. So what should we know? What should we understand? God hates sin. He hates sin. That's the wrath of John 3.16, John 3.17. The wrath of God is being revealed because of God's displeasure, God's hatred of sin. He hates it so much that what does he have to do? He has to do something about it. And the only thing that keeps a person from a relationship, from a holy God, is not the fact that they don't have enough money, not anything. The only thing that keeps us from a relationship, from a holy God, it's one thing. It's unconfessed sin in our life, that I will not deal with the sin in my life. That's why the song talks about sin and error pining. There's destruction of what's going on in our lives and in our world. Listen, there's an ugliness to Christmas, but there's also the beauty. See, you can't get to the beauty. You can't truly understand the beauty until you understand that Paul twice says, I'm the worst of sinners. God has saved me from something. He's saved me from death. He's saved me from eternal death. And we see the beauty of Christmas in verse 15. Notice it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Eight words in the original language that gives us the understanding of the gospel of grace. This is a message about the gospel of grace. Paul has already said in verse 14 what has happened in his life, how he's been transformed by the grace of God. Notice what he writes. He says this, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. Paul knew that, listen, I was going down this track. I was going down the wrong way. There's this ugliness, this darkness in my life. Yet the grace of God captured me, changed me, transformed me on the inside so that I could respond to the gospel of grace. Listen, there's an ugliness of Christmas, but Jesus came to remove the ugliness of Christmas in our own life. He talks about being the worst of sinners. There's no doubt in my mind that stories were going on about Jesus and who he is and what he'd done in life. There's no doubt they were passing along 
orally the traditions of Jesus and the stories of Jesus and the theology of Jesus. And I have to believe the story of Zacchaeus was going around, they were passing around. You understand the story of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And Jesus is going through Jericho. And this little short man, he can't get there, so he goes up in a tree. And Jesus comes to him and says, I need to go to your house. You're a tax collector. You're an outsider. You're probably hated by all the people. You are someone who probably spends a lot of time by yourself. But I need to go to your house. And Jesus goes to his house. And all of the religious people, all of the people are astounded that Jesus would go to such a scoundrel's house. Why would you go to a tax collector's house? Why would you set foot in this man's house? And Zacchaeus sees and he hears, and he knows, and somehow, someway he hears that he can respond, and he says, I'll give half of my money to the poor, and I'll pay back four times all the way that I've, I've wronged other people. In other words, you see in the life of Zacchaeus this idea of true repentance. Remember what Jesus said to him? Luke chapter 19. Today, salvation has come to this house because this man who is a son of Abraham For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came to save us from our sin. That's what the song says. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Broken people like Zacchaeus and broken people like Paul and broken people like you and I get a sense of the worth of Jesus when we embrace who he is and what he has done to us. That Jesus came to save us from our sin. There are two incredibly beautiful truths locked up in this verse. The first one is this, the incarnation. Jesus left the wonder, the glory, the perfection of heaven to what? To come and to tabernacle, to live among you. And the second is this idea of full redemption. He came to save sinners like you, save sinners like me. See, we need to go through the ugliness of Christmas to understand the beauty of what we've been saved from. Jesus Christ came into the world to redeem my life from the pit of hell, and to change and transform me and give me a beautiful place in his kingdom. John chapter 3, verse 17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do you feel that sense of the soul felt its worth? Even in the midst of our sinfulness and the darkness of our life, do you understand that you have great worth and meaning and value because you've been created in the very image of God and that your sin has been forgiven. And no matter what has gone on in your life, your life can be transformed. The burdens of your life can be lifted. The stain can be wiped away. The guilt can be removed. All of those things, all of the darkness of the world, all of the things that weigh upon our lives and upon our soul can be dealt with at the cross of Jesus Christ because he came to offer himself as a sacrifice for sin. Listen, for some people, this is a very, very dark time. So Paul says, I've got a message that's reliable. It's, it's a message that's dependable. I've got a message that will transform your life, that will transform your very, very soul. And then he brings in the application of verse 16. What's the application to this message? The application to the message is this. Now, Paul, guess what? You're an example. You are an example of what it means to have your life transformed. Now, go out and be that example. Look at verse 16. But for this very reason, what was the reason that Jesus transformed his life. But for this reason, I was shown mercy. Even though I was a persecutor of the church, even though I was right there when Stephen was being killed, even though I could be considered a murderer, in spite of all that, I was shown mercy. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. The reason that Paul 
was radically changed by the message of Jesus is so that he could be a light in the midst of the darkness. So people could see his life and say, wow, your life is radically different. Your life has been transformed from darkness into light. You are now an example of God's wonder and God's beauty and God's grace because of the transformation that's happened inside of your heart. You and I have the great privilege at Christmas time to point people ultimately to the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way that we would live. How are we living now in such a way that our lives ultimately point to the message of Jesus? Paul said it's God's unlimited patience, his forbearance. It's God's patience and kindness and love that leads us to repentance. That's why God is tarrying. That's why God is waiting, waiting and allowing people to respond to the message of Jesus. By the way, the Bible, the Bible is a, it's a history. It's a lesson. It's a picture of broken people responding to God. It's not about perfect people. It's about broken people responding to God and to the message of Jesus Christ that he came to save sinners. So at Christmas time, we often look at different aspects of the life of Jesus, the incarnation, the angels, and things like that. If you go back and look, and if you go back and one, there's a genealogy. Sometimes you can look at the genealogy. There's a really interesting genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, and I want to point out one person in the genealogy, one person in the line of Jesus. And I want to take and I want to describe that. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, It says this, Matthew is giving the genealogies, and notice what he says in verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Do you remember Tamar? Do you have a vague understanding of Tamar? Joseph is thrown into prison. Get up to Genesis chapter 3. He's being captured by the Midianites, and he's going to go, and he's going to go down to Egypt. And then chapter 38, you have this picture of Judah. It's almost like what God wants to do is he wants to give us a picture of the family that Joseph came through. And in Genesis chapter 38, you have this story of Tamar. And it begins with Judah. Judah leaves his godly heritage. He leaves the family. He leaves his family. He goes to a foreign land, and he takes a Canaanite wife. He takes a pagan wife is what he does. He violates all that he's supposed to do by taking a wife that he shouldn't. And he ends up having three boys. Ur, Onan, and Shelah, the first boy, is getting ready to be married. And according to the custom, what Judah does, he goes and gets a wife for a son, and he gets Tamar as his wife. So Ur is married to Tamar. And all of a sudden, Ur does something evil before the Lord. We don't know exactly what it is, but he's declared evil before the Lord, and God takes his life. Well, according to the Leverite marriage prescription, the next son is supposed to take the wife and marry and build a line through them. So what's supposed to happen? Onan is supposed to take her as his wife and to provide for her and to sleep with her so that the name and the line would go on. But Onan dies. He does something evil, and he ends up dying. And Judas is saying, well, Ur's gone, and Onan's gone, and he's going, there's something wrong with Tamar because every time she gets married, people are dying. He tells her, he tells Tamar, let's wait for Sheila to grow up. When he grows up, what I'll do is I will pass her on to you and you can marry her. And so what she does is she puts on the idea that she's going to just wait and hang in there. So she puts on the clothes of a widow and she waits. Years later, Judah's wife dies and he mourns for her. And then he goes to shear his sheep in Timnah. Hmm, that's an interesting phrase, shear his sheep in Timnah. Somehow, someway, Tamar finds out what's going on. She's going, hmm, I wonder what's going on here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go to Timnah. 
I'm going to remove my widow's clothes. I'm going to remove the black. The morning that I've been, I've been waiting. I'm going to go and I'm going to sit outside. I'm going to go to Timnah. I'm going to sit outside and I'm going to wait for my father-in-law to come. And that's what she did. She went out there. She knew that she'd been promised Sheila. She knew that she'd been promised that something would happen, that she would remarry, and her line would continue. So she went and she waited. Here's a man, Judah, one of the rocks of the faith. He's violated his covenant. He's married a Canaanite woman. He's basically given up the role, the leadership, the godly leadership of his family. What he's done, he's gone to sleep with a prostitute, what he believes is a prostitute. All of a sudden, he's consorting with, with someone he believes is a prostitute. So he goes down there, and he sleeps with her, and he makes this bargain. What are you going to do? What's the bargain for sleeping with you? And Tamar says, I want your signet, I want your cord, your step. I, I want those things. And so that's what he does. He sleeps there, and he leaves this car keys, if you will, a cell phone. All of this is wallet. He leaves it with him because he's going to come back. He's going to bring a kid. He's going to send a goat to her, and he's going to take the payment, and then he's going to get all of this stuff back. That's what happens. That's what he does. He's going to take this, and he's going to run with it, and he's going to just sleep with her and go off with it. Then you know the story. Three months later... Somebody comes to Judah. Hey, you see your daughter-in-law? See what happened with her? She has played the role of a prostitute by sleeping with someone else, and she is now pregnant. You know what Judah does? Bring her out. Bring her out, because we're going to stone her to death. Consider the hardness of this man's heart. He had grace in his own life to marry outside of the covenant people. He had grace in his own life to commit prostitution with this woman who we thought was a harlot. He had grace enough to keep what he had promised to him. He had grace enough in his life. He had grace enough to define himself in his role in an understanding of what God would have for him in his life. But he didn't have grace enough to extend it to his daughter-in-law. So they said, bring her out, let's stone her to death. So they bring her out to stone her to death. And probably one of the most awkward scenes that you could ever imagine. Tamar says, by the way, I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. Well, let's look in the wallet. Let's just look in the, the car keys. Let's, let's flip through the iPhone here. Let's see who this is. The signet, the staff, and the cord. Oh, by the way, it belongs to, it belongs to that guy over here. It belongs to Judah. It belongs to the leadership of the family. It belongs to one of the leaders of our family. It belongs to this person over here. Remember what he says? You are more, more righteous than I am. You are more righteous than I because I withheld something to you that I told you that I was going to do. And Matthew... Matthew, thinking back of the life of Jesus, thinking through the genealogy, the Holy Spirit of God through Matthew writes, I want you to put Tamar's name in the genealogy. I want you to put her name there because the Messiah is going to come through that line. You have this scorned woman, this sinful woman, and she's included in the genealogy of Christ, the Messiah. And God says, put her name there as a reminder of God's grace of a reminder of the depths that God will go to to redeem his broken people. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'll be gracious to Tamar. She has two children, and through Perez, the Messiah will come. So when we're writing scriptures, I want you to include her in there. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God? See, the beauty of Christmas is is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners like you and like me. And that means this. In, in the brokenness of our world right now, there's a lot of people that are hurting. There's a lot of people that are struggling in life. 
And if Paul was going to be example to people, you and I are example of the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the things we say, through the things we do, the way that we would pray for people, maybe the way that we would serve another person. You know, keep our eyes and, and ears and hearts open to the brokenness of people in the world around. Let's not close ourselves off like Judah did, but let's open ourselves off to the wonder and the beauty of who Jesus is. And let's serve each other. Let's serve not only your family, but to the person at school that might be going through a difficult time or the person at your job or, or someplace, a neighbor who's going through a difficult time. Why? Because you and I are examples of the grace of God to other people. That's the message that Paul would have. And so the song goes like this. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. That's the gospel. That's the message of Jesus, a new and glorious morn. God came to transform us in the unique person of Jesus Christ. And how do we respond? We fall on our knees. Oh, hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night when Christ was born, O night divine, O night divine. So I wanted to begin this idea of theme of a thrill of hope with the reminder that the ugliness and the brokenness of our world but God steps in the middle of that brokenness, that God came to us. And he says, I want to lift that burden. I want to lift that stain. I want, to, I want to lift you out of the muck and the mire and the pain and the ugliness of sin. And I want to bring you in. I want you to feel that sense of worth. I want you to feel what I can do for you and know what I can do for you. If you'll put your faith and you'll put your trust in me. And may we continue to go out and be that light, be that example to other people. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. Father, thank you for the way that you have radically changed our lives. Father, thank you for the message of hope that we have. Father, you came to this world to bear our sin. And Father, we, we see the beauty of who Jesus, in light of the way that we have lived in the past, light of what you've saved us from, and we thank you for that. Father, thank you that if any man, any person is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old things pass away, behold, new things have come. And Father, I pray that there is someone here this morning who has not touched and asked, repented of their sin, and committed their life to Jesus. I pray that in the quietness of their heart, they would simply respond and say, Jesus, I believe in who you are. I believe in what you've done, that you came into this world to save me from my sin, and I commit my life to you. Father, we thank you again for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.